What is up, team? Welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined once again by my man, Brandon DeCruz. Brandon, as always, thank you for being back, dude. Absolutely, my man. I feel like uh, we're a team at this point with uh, all the series <laughs> that we've done. We have such a, a great chemistry, and I always get great feedback. So I appreciate everyone who listens, and I appreciate you, man. Uh, you become a great friend and mentee within this industry, and it's always good to link up and be able to record on topics that we're both passionate about. That's something I live for. Absolutely, dude. I feel like we have a similar conversation to this at the start of most of our podcasts, but as always, dude, I appreciate you, and I know we talked about this off air, but the standard is coaching you set for everyone around you. I know like we as a team really appreciate that it continues to hold us to a higher standard and continue to improve. And again, like the information we put out here, because I know I've already been getting DMs today about how much people loved the first episode on energy flux, which we're about to take a new part to here, but that just dropped a couple hours ago and I'm already getting people DMing me about how much they enjoyed it. So I'm stoked to get into this a little bit deeper. Hell yeah, man. I'm going to continue. My goal is to continue setting that standard. And uh, actually, you know what? This isn't probably going to go out for another week. So I'll, I'll make an announcement today and I'll, I'll inform you. I know I've been hinting at this, but I'm going to be uh, launching a podcast actually starting tomorrow. Um, so this is something that's oh, been in the works for quite some time. Yeah. So I'm going to be getting on the podcast scene. You know, over the last few years, I've done uh, over 100 podcasts. I've been on yours quite a bit. Um, and I've just seen what what impact that, that has made, just these guest appearances and stuff. So I'm going to be linking up with my man, Jeff Black, who's one of my mentors and one of my closest friends. He owns a gym in Tennessee that's an extremely popular gym. He has his own seminar, educational seminar. So we're going to be doing an educational podcast and then parlaying that into a type of a, like an educational business. Because like you said, one of my main goals, besides the clients that I work with who I love educating, is educating coaches. And that's why I do the mentorships. And that's why I do you know, the consultations, as you know, and I do other things to the side. And so it really is just setting the bar at a higher standard because this is, as with any industry, it should be evolving. And it's not to say that, you know, coaching hasn't evolved, but there are some stop gaps that I see both from an educational perspective and then an application perspective. And really my goal, as you know, I often say on any podcast that I get onto, it's to bridge that gap between the information and the application. You can't have one without the other. Oh yeah, dude. I am so stoked to hear that. I, I'll say it's about time, man. Um, w- within that, again, I really think that'll be something that'll be huge for the industry because like, just like we've been talking about, you're constantly like pushing that bar higher. I, I know for us, just like listening to you, mentoring under you has raised the standard and the quality of coaching that we're able to give so much for our clients. And even like things that like we didn't even know we were doing wrong before. Like you helped us kind of get out of our own way to help you just be better able to help people so much more. And I'm very stoked to see that. And again, like I know like Jeff Black and kind of that group that the group of people that were with it. And like, I really, one thing I appreciate about that group as a whole is just how much everybody it's kind of seems to be on the same mission to just improve the industry. So I'm so, so to hear that dude, just the more I think we can get your voice out there, the better. Um, do you mind sharing the name of the podcast? People can look it up. Or yeah. So it's, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's share it. So it's called chasing clarity. And the oh. reason for that is because it's a pursuit of excellence, but at the same time, really the goal is going to be to bridge the gap between complexity and clarity, because I believe, you know, often, you know, I speak to people and they'll ask me, what am I a specialist in or what, you know, and I, I have some specialties, metabolic adaptation, metabolism, fat loss, things of that sort that I'm really deeply entrenched into, but I kind of see myself as a T. And what I mean by that is I know a wide amount about a, a multitude of topics. Think about all the topics I've spoken to you about, mm-hmm. whether it be off air or even on air, but then 
a T is both wide, but then you go deep into things. So my whole goal within this industry, it's not to be a generalist because I don't think you should try to be a jack of all trades, but I do want to be good in multiple aspects within what coaching is about. So the physiology, the psychology, the biology, all of these things, and really be able to go wide on different topics, but also go really deep and, and really into the nuances of specific topics that are really applicable and really helpful for the clientele that I work with. So that's really the goal of Chasing Clarity. We're going to be going, you know, through a wide spectrum of topics and, and things that, you know, like you mentioned, it's about time. I've gotten so many requests over the last couple of years. Hey, why don't you come out with a podcast? And it was just something that it wasn't the right time for me. And so now as I transition more and more in this year, as I, as I told you, and I did, um, I think the first episode that we did of 2022, my real goal is to broaden and really expand my ripple effect of coaching. So I can only work with so many clients as can you and your team. However, I can get more information out there. I can help more individuals that maybe can't afford coaching right now or aren't in the place in their life that they can, you know, a lot of people contact me and they say, listen, I would love to work with you, but right now isn't a great time. So for the time being, I'm going to provide that information. And then when those individuals are ready, or even the coaches, you know, when they're ready for mentorship, we can go the, the next level deeper, like you and I have and your team have. But at the same time, I still want to be able to put out good content and good information because a lot of what this industry does, I see a lot of coaches are people that have a lot of education and have a lot of knowledge and how they get their message across is by putting down others. And my goal is not to do so. My goal is to put out such great information that it causes you to think critically about what you're doing and realize the things that you've heard that are wrong. So instead of me getting on a platform and doing these call out videos and saying, you know, this person's incorrect or this influencer is, is, um, you know, spitting out myths. I'd rather just get out and put out such great information that you realize it's research backed, it's evidence-based, but it's also been applied in the trenches and you, you come to your own conclusion. You believe what you want to believe, but I'm going to give you all the evidence behind it, all the research behind it, and then all the case studies. And you come to the conclusion of your own, but at the same time, I haven't had to trample on someone else to get my message out there. I love that, man. I think that's so important as well. Again, like I think this, I think, I don't remember if it was Jeff Black or you that originally started this, but I know it was like on Instagram story that I was tagged in it as well, where you were, one of you guys was talking about how like, there's plenty of seats at the table, but the goal mm-hmm. is to kind of elevate this, the industry as a whole. Like that resonated with me so much. I, I love where you're coming from there so much. Cause I agree. There's just so much, just everybody's trying to shit on everybody else, as opposed to like, how can we better help people? How instead of shooting on these people, can we help them grow? And like they can in turn impact the people because there's so many people out there that like need help. There's there's so many seats at the table, right? We don't need to just be like fighting and bickering back and forth. We just need to all be focused on continuing to get better. So I'm so to tune in, man. When that releases, I will definitely, I assume that that'll probably be out at the time this episode drops. So I will for sure for all the listeners have that link up in the show notes as well. Hundred percent. I appreciate that, my friend. And yeah, that was that was a post I made about. There's enough room for all of us. See, and a lot of times within a competitive and evolving industry, a lot of people are cut through it with their approach to things. But really, like I said, my my goal is to have an impact and have a ripple effect. And with that, I'm trying to bring up everyone else. It's not like I need to you know put other people down to elevate myself. That's never been my intention or my goal. And really, what I see this as is if we can all get better, we can all help 
ourselves as well as each other, but also we can turn the tides on the people that have had bad experience with coaches. I have so many people that come to me and one of the, the main questions in my intake form are, have, have you worked with a coach? And if so, how was your experience and how many coaches you've went through? And when I did my 2021 analysis every year uh, before I go into a new year, I analyze all the data that I collected within a year. And the average person that came to me as a new client within the year of 2021 had went through 4.5 coaches. So on average, about five coaches. Now, Damn. why do you think they went through that many? Yes, at cer- certain times, it is because the client just didn't match with them or it wasn't the right phase of their life. But I also go through the actual written portion. And a lot of times it was they had a really bad experience and it kind of made them feel that coaching either wasn't for them or that coaching wasn't something that was going to be beneficial to their life and to their pursuit of their goals. And I don't want that to be, I don't want people to fear working with a coach or look down upon our industry because of certain individuals that aren't doing right by the clients that they work with. So really like when I say I'm trying to set a standard and raise, you know, raise the standard of this industry, it's to bring everyone up. It's so that we don't have a bad reputation as coaches in general, because coaching has so many benefits to your life, to your structure, to your health, to your physique. And here's the thing, you know, more than anyone, I invest into myself in, in coaches. I have mentors. I have PhDs that I work with. I have college professors that I consult on a weekly basis. And for that, I believe in coaching as much, you know, I invest into coaching much more than anyone I know, first and foremost, or mentoring. And I believe that as a coach, we should believe in coaching enough to invest into ourselves and into our craft. So you can't expect the client to want to invest into you and what you're providing as a service unless you're willing to invest into yourself. And the only way we can do that is to make sure that everyone's operating at a higher standard, essentially. I couldn't agree more, man. Um, this is very much a tangent I want to go off on, but I think we could talk about this for a long time. So let's go ahead and dig into energy flux. But again, I'm so stoked to see again what these next couple of months hold, because I know you have a lot in the works. And I think there might even be more that are going on behind the scenes that we haven't discussed yet. So I'm really excited to see what happens with you in 2022. Um, but let's go ahead and get into part two of energy flux, really kind of just talking through the application of this. So the last episode that we did together was very much digging into why energy flux is so important, um, why it's something we should use. So to start, can you kind of take us through a quick intro on the goals behind energy flux and why it's something you use with clients? Yeah, absolutely. So for anyone that hasn't listened to this episode, I would refer you to go back because we went through all the science, all the benefits, but a quick encapsulation of why I use energy flux and what my goals are with it, it really comes down to the fact that I find that the majority of new clients who come to me for coaching do so with very specific goals in mind. And I'm sure you could, you could relate to this, Jeremiah. As you develop as a coach, um, you start attracting a certain clientele that have similar goals or a similar lifestyle. And it's, it's, it's based on many things, but over time, they've either, you know, these clients have either heard me on a podcast like your own, they've read my posts or my articles, or they've seen the clients that I, I coach and I work with. And they have the goal of not only getting lean, but maintaining a lean, healthy physique year round. And, you know, really when I think about this, honestly, ironically, honestly, come to think of it, like the best way to describe what they want is to be living lean. Like your show is a, is a great encompassing of like exactly their goal. So here's the thing. The issue is that the majority of these individuals that I consult with on a daily basis have this goal, but they have either haven't ever been able to get lean in the past. So that's like their main anchor or the main limitation holding them back, or they've, they haven't been able to stay lean when they have lost weight because they've taken the typical, you know, eat less, exercise more approach. And eventually I've gotten to the point where they either can't sustain it or they want to do so, but they also don't want to be chronically in a deficit in order to stay that lean. 
So what I really try to get across to people is that their nutrition, their training, and their movement need to be looked at as a part of their lifestyle, not as a means to an end, because that's a short-term approach that will only lead to you know short-term results. So basically, most people, they want to eat more and stay lean, but the recipe for being able to do this is to build more muscle and to move more. However, like when people come to me, I'm looking over everything that they're doing, and the majority of people who come to me are already seriously into resistance training. So the lever that I use to get them to be eating more is to use energy flux as a method of increasing their calorie intake while staying lean and continuing to work on building muscle, which is a far slower process to achieve, whereas movement is something they can implement today and get a benefit out of. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. So how do you kind of go about, or how do you start the process, I should say, of assessing a client's state of energy flux before you actually go about like increasing steps or increasing movement? All right. So just from like a broad level perspective, the first thing I do is take a look at what they're doing now and what they've done in the past. As that gives me insight into what's gotten to them to where they are today, um, as well as what's worked for them and what hasn't. I need to see where you are. I need to meet where you are essentially. So most new clients, whether that be lifestyle or even competitors, they're training hard. Um, when they come to me, but they generally have a relatively low level of activity and a calorie intake that they're unhappy with. Um, and what I mean by that is like, for instance, anytime that they decide to eat off plan or go out with their friends or family, they automatically gain weight in the days after these meals. So they almost feel like they need to eat low calories all the time, or they'll never stay lean. And this is like, not only is this a physiological problem, so physically they feel restricted, but it also rubs off and it also, you know, bleeds out into their psychology. So they feel physically limited and then mentally restrained. And that's just not a, like for a long-term sustainable approach, that's something that's never going to work. Um, so sometimes what I'll do with these clients is I'll put them in a primer phase where I'll look to improve their physiology so that we can get their body into a place, you know, into a better place where they're responding better to every aspect of the program. However, right. if someone comes to me and they've just finished a fat loss phase, um, my main goal is to reestablish their baseline maintenance calories over a few weeks before we go into a reverse dieting phase, which we've covered in detail throughout other podcasts. So if anyone is really interested in the reverse dieting phase, we've done a podcast on that like in depth. But during this reverse dieting phase, I start, you know, I'll start titrating calories up first based on like the macronutrients that they need to prioritize most. And it could be macros, but it also could be micros. So I have a lot of people that come to me and they might've been really low on carbohydrates. So that's going to be my first area of focus, but they're not only coming to me from an energy deficit, but also from a nutrient deficit. So the common, you know, very common thing is that they're low in selenium, iodine, tyrosine, zinc, all these essential cofactors that are needed for hormones, especially for thyroid. So I'm looking at multiple different, um, you know, analyses. So I'm looking at their blood work. I'm looking at their client intake form. I'm looking at their, their nutritional data on chronometer that I'm, I'm punching in on the back end. And, you know, so really my goal is to get more energy into the system based on what they need specifically. If someone's under eating protein, I'm going to prioritize increasing protein so we can build muscle and really keep them satiated. If someone's really restricted on fat, I'm going to increase, you know, essential fatty acids first and foremost, and then I'm going to put in a mix of mono and polyunsaturated fats, and then maybe a little bit of saturated fats. So it really depends on where that person's coming from and what their needs are, as well as what their lifestyle is like and their training is like. And from there, I'm going to monitor their body's biofeedback over the next couple of weeks to see their natural response to going to surplus. And then on my end, I generally know how much of an average increase I should be seeing weekly from a scale perspective. However, mm -hmm. honestly, this can vary so much from one person to another. 
So the first couple of weeks, I'm really trying to gauge and determine what that individual's response is. Because we do know, like, for instance, you work with a ton of females, and I see this myself, the menstrual cycle fluctuations with water, they're going to throw off some of our readings. So I'm making sure Mm -hmm. I'm looking at average weekly weight increases. I'm looking, instead of just looking week to week, I'm looking across the menstrual cycle itself. So week one of the follicular phase compared to the next months or the next cycles, week one of the follicular phase. And that allows me to get more, more of a critical analysis of the data that I'm looking at. But once I've collected this data, this baseline data, then I'll start titrating calories up along with their activity to get both their calorie intake and their energy expenditure higher in order to get them into a high flux state. But the way I do this and the type of changes I make in terms of both the frequency of changes and then the magnitude, so how large of calories or how you know, greatest steps, it's all going to depend on the individual, their goals, their lifestyle, what they've done in the past. So there's so many individual characteristics. And that's really where I'm going to be honest with you. I've done a lot of podcasts on the topics of energy flux. And mm-hmm. I often have, you know, other coaches come to me who have went to my presentations or they've heard my podcast and they'll present me with issues that they've had with the, with the, the model. And mm-hmm. the thing is that they have a really like set it and forget it type approach. And what they're not realizing, what I try to express to them I've been doing this since 2015. So I have years in the trenches first and foremost, and I have so many things on the back end that I'm working on, so many metrics that I'm tracking that it's not that I'm not susceptible to error with a client, but I'm I'm able to get more in the ballpark and be really specific and, and really targeted to that person's biofeedback. And what I really see is a lot of coaches will tell me, well, you know, I'm doing it by a thousand steps per week and a hundred calories. Well, that might work on average, but not everyone's average and not everyone's going to respond in the same fashion. So if you really, you know, get them into a, a place where, where you're doing these automatic changes without really paying attention to the client's biofeedback, that's why they're not getting the results that you're looking for or that you've heard me speak about. And that's where really taking an individualized approach to coaching is so important because this is all about the individual. You know, I have hundreds of client case studies and I'll tell you, they range all over the, the board. I have clients in high flux at 7,500 or 8,500 steps. I have clients mm-hmm. that in high flux at 15 to 18,000 steps and it's all over the map. And there's been certain individuals that it's been over the course of an elongated reverse diet. We've increased 500 calories and I've had people within a few weeks, I'm up a thousand calories with them. So it's, it's so individualized and we have to realize that this isn't about protocols. It's about taking a principle and manipulating it to really fit the person that's sitting in front of you. Absolutely, man. And very similar to the conversation we had at the start here. The goal here is to basically understand these principles and be able to apply them to the individual. But that's part of why there's not like, hey, do exactly this. And then you add a thousand steps and then you add another 50 calories this week, right? Like it's going to vary so much by person. Is there generally like a couple biofeedback markers specifically? So like somebody who is coming from like a bowel loss phase, let's say we're shifting them towards a higher flux state. Is Are there a few like biofeedback markers specifically where you're typically seeing the biggest improvements or is that just something that varies wildly? Yeah. So I'm looking at biomarkers usually first and foremost, because it's the lowest barrier of entry for us to do. So I really, you know, I'm a big fan of blood work. However, mm-hmm. it's not like I can get blood work initially when they start with me and then four weeks later and, and really titrate and really track these things. Um, for most people, I do have some clients that they're like, listen, I'll pay for whatever it is. I want to get the most up-to-date readings and we'll do that, but that's the minority. So really these biomarkers, what I mean by that 
is I'm tracking health metrics. And with that, it's going to be fasted blood glucose, potentially postprandial blood glucose, which is after meal. So two hours post meal, where is your uh, blood glucose levels at? It's blood pressure and addressing heart rate. I'm really using all three of those as gauges to see how is their aerobic capacity improving? How is their nutrient partitioning? How is their insulin sensitivity? So generally what I'll see within the first couple of weeks, if someone comes to me, I'm getting a baseline on all these metrics. So I'm seeing, where are you at coming to me metabolically? Meaning, Where's your blood glucose levels at fasted? Are they elevated? Are you showing signs of stress? Are you showing signs of insulin resistance? So I'm, I'm setting a baseline and I'm getting an average and I had that all tracked in a, in a sheet. And then also I'm looking at their blood pressure. I'm looking at their resting heart rate. And, and there's a lot of times where I'll see someone that's like sympathetic dominant, meaning they're highly stressed. They have a really high resting heart rate. And it's just a sign that they're not able to turn off their sympathetic or their fight or flight system. They're always in that high stress. They feel tired, but wired at night. They can't sleep well. They wake up in the middle of the night and they feel like they can't go back to bed. So there's all these symptoms of high stress. They feel worn out throughout the day. They have waning energy up and down. They might suffer from like blood sugar crashes. So these are all signs of high cortisol. And with that, that's where I'm really going to focus on pulling back on some of the higher intensity activities really increasing energy flux and getting some more carbohydrates in the system to try to balance out that autonomic nervous system because carbohydrates and insulin help to lower uh, cortisol levels. So that would be a specific instance for someone that comes to me with a high resting heart rate, but there's so many variables that I'm looking at. And I do look at blood work over the course, generally on an average of every three months. But for those short-term metrics, I'm really trying to say, hey, in the course of the the, the first couple of weeks, where are their metrics at when they started with me and how are they improving? You know, are they going in the direction that we want them to head in? Absolutely. I'm glad you touched on potentially even pulling back on higher intensity activity, because I think when we look at this model, it would be easy to, or a, an easy mistake to make would be like, okay, so we're just going to add in a lot of hit. We're going to add in more hard sets within training, right? And just add more, 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 where again, like the type of activity we're a very important piece of this as well, which actually leads me well into my next question, which is kind of what is this main method of increasing energy flux? So for example, are you using training volume, cardio, steps? What does that look like? Yeah, so no, absolutely. So really when I talk about energy flux, I really make it certain. There's two things I always reinstate and it's a simplified story, but it's something that it's able to get across at people. And the things I say are, we're going to eat more, and we're going to move more. And it's very intentional with both of those words, meaning I put eat more first because you need to feel this process. It can't be that you're chronically restricting yourself and you're just getting more output because your body's not going to respond. Your metabolism adapts to what you feed it. So you feed it more, it'll give you more in terms of your energy expenditure. But at the same time, I don't want it to be eat more, exercise more. I don't want you living in the gym or feeling like you have to slam yourself in, in, in your training or titrate things up in a stressful manner. So we have a few tools we can use to lose fat and maintain a lean physique. However, they all serve different purposes. And I think we really have to go through those so people realize that. So from my perspective, I see resistance training as a way to build and maintain muscle, not to burn calories. So increasing training volume to increase energy flux is rarely an approach that I use unless the client needs a higher amount of volume than they come to me at just to provide a greater training stimulus to build muscle. But keep in mind, yes, is that going to increase energy flux? Slightly. However, that's not the intention. The intention is to build muscle. But I don't believe resistance training should ever be looked at as simply a fat loss tool, as we don't actually burn that many calories during a weight training session, especially as many as most people expect. And when you really think about it, like think about what you're doing in the gym. Yes, we're training hard. We're expending you know, a lot of mental and physical energy within the context of a set, 
But really the majority of the time that you spend in the gym, you're, you're not actively contracting muscle. You're resting in between sets. So that's why you're really not expending that much calories. And even when we look into the literature, there's actually a recent study by Little um, that came out just a few years ago where they created a formula to determine how many calories are actually burned during resistance training sessions. And they did this in a really like, um, you know, great way in terms of accuracy. They used a metabolic cart to measure calorie expenditure during a high volume resistance training session. And they used both male and female trainees. So this is applicable to both sexes. And it's something that we can really extrapolate the findings to those that we work with. Um, I believe it, they did full body sessions throughout the course of a week and they were pretty high volume. So we're looking at some of the sessions were seven exercises utilizing two sets per uh, two working sets per um, exercise. And then some sessions were up to seven exercises with three working sets. So we're looking at approximately like 14 to 21 sets per session. And what they saw was that on average, men burned about 160 calories. And then on average for females, they burned 88 calories. And then, so that's, you know, we, we think about it and we're like, wow, that's not a lot of calories. Now these were short sessions. They were high volume, but in most of the research, if we look across like the body of literature, which is really always my intention, I'm never trying to take one study. So I, I generally, when I'm looking at things, I'm looking at meta-analysis, which are studies of studies, because I really want to see where's the aggregate, meaning where's the average at of what we're seeing from the literature. And in other studies, we see that women on average burn about hundred to 200 calories per resistance training session whereas men burn about two to 300 calories per session. And the reason that we see this difference in energy expenditure between sexes is pretty much just due to the fact that men are both heavier and they're using higher loads, which increases the amount of calories they burn. But overall, most of the literature shows that we at most burn about three calories per minute during resistance training, which is far less than many would expect. So say you have a 60-minute session. If you're a male, probably the most you're going to really burn is 180 calories, unless you're having like these marathon sessions in the gym, which you're probably just accumulating more junk volume. So it's, it's less conducive for your actual uh, muscle gaining, you know, intention. And yes, you're burning more calories, but you could be burning calories in another fashion. So this is why I believe resistance training should really be looked at as a way to improve your body composition by helping to build and maintain muscle mass. Because that in and of itself, so if you build muscle, it's going to maintain and increase your resting metabolic rate as lean body mass, so which is you know highly uh, built up of muscle, accounts for about 70% of our resting metabolic rate or the calories that we burn at rest. So really, that's what we should use resistance training for. That should be building muscle, maintaining muscle, and it shouldn't be looked at as a way to um, increase energy expenditure or energy flux. Now, the other form of higher intensity activity that I often get questions about is HIT because it's known for being really effective. It's high intensity. It burns a lot of calories in a short period of time. And when it comes to the concept of energy flux, I'm not a big fan of doing HIT training in order to increase energy flux. And that's because, honestly, I found that, that HIT causes a lot of fatigue, which can actually cause you to compensate for the rest of the day. So, so even if you do burn, say you do do like a really intense HIT session and you burn a few more calories within that session, if you've trashed yourself so much that you're exhausted the rest of the day, you're going to burn less calories because, than you normally would because you're compensating, because you're sitting more, because you're more exhausted. And then also from another perspective, just on hit in and of itself, I know your audience is, is you know, probably you know, highly female. I know that's a lot of who you work with. We actually have a study from Scalzo that I very rarely hear people um, hit on, but there's a study that looked at a comparison between men and female or men and women doing HIIT training. And what they showed was that women seem to respond poorly to HIIT training due to the excessive fatigue and cortisol elevations it causes. So from a recovery management perspective, I'd rather not use this as a way to increase a, uh, a client's energy flux. So 
really what this leaves us with is non-exercise activity, which is what I focus heavily on as a means of increasing and influencing a client's energy flux. And then for anyone out there, if you're not familiar with me, this is refers to all your physical activity besides your formal exercise or training session. So this would be activities of daily living, like your steps and walking around. It can be chores around the house, uh, the movement you do at work. So if you're standing or you have a physical, uh, you know, a laborious job, you know, even going grocery shopping or going to the store, fidgeting, and even maintaining your posture, you're burning calories throughout that entire process. So neat is the aspect of our total daily energy expenditure which we have the largest control over, which is why it's so impactful, especially from a fat loss perspective. And I also find it to be the most convenient and realistic way to increase a client's energy flux as we can literally do it any time of the day. We can do it anywhere. It doesn't cause any like accumulated fatigue. Um, and it actually improves recovery because if you're just slightly moving throughout the day, it's at such a low level that you're just getting blood flow. You're increasing nutrient delivery. So I really prefer this type of activity rather than piling up more training or hit cardio that are just going to increase fatigue, hinder recovery, and really take away from your ability to, to effectively train and build muscle. Okay, absolutely. So with the modality of cardio or movement, I should say that we're doing, it sounds like the primary goal here is to basically keep it within the aerobic system, right? I, rather than switching over to like a more aerobic modality. So I would ask there, kind of where do we draw the line? Like, for example, we could like, hey, you could go like incline walking on the treadmill or you could go hop up a stairmill or, and like, you could argue that, hey, maybe this is like still within the anaerobic side of things, kind of like, or with the, in the aerobic side of things, where you kind of draw the line there. Does that question make sense? No, absolutely. So if if you're actually asking from a physiological perspective, we would really see the anaerobic system starting to kick on around 65 to 70% of VO2 max. But generally, if you're just doing like really what I'm doing with energy flux, it's daily movement, it's steps, it's walking around, it's really low levels. So generally, yes. Can a client do it on a treadmill? Of course they can. But is that my intention? Is that the directions that I'm sending them to? No, unless they have no other ability to do it. You know, I have a client... It was just snowing out in Colorado a few weeks ago. So they went on the treadmill. But generally what I have people doing, it's out in nature. It's walking, you know, doing chores around your house, gardening, finding an activity that you like. Me personally, I take my calls and I do what are called walk and talk calls. So I'm walking, you know, outside, I'm getting some sunlight and I'm in Jersey, so it's not great weather, but I would rather be out there getting some sunlight exposure than doing it in the confines of a gym. However, I will tell you that there had been long stretches, especially when it was, you know, the pandemic was a lot worse in this area where I was doing most of my work from a a treadmill desk. And I found that to be extremely effective, but at the same time I was doing it at a very low intensity. So meaning I was putting the treadmill on at about two miles per hour, which is extremely slow. So I'm probably at 30% VO2 max. My heart rate's not through the roof. I'm completely nasally breathing. So I'm in a parasympathetic state. I'm decreasing cortisol production and I'm lowering stress and I'm able to be really highly cognitively um, functioning, which we see that actually blood flow. We covered this on last episode, but just blood flow and standing can help with um, you know, neuronal activity. So in the brain, it'll help release a BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor. So it'll actually help with focus and cog- uh, concentration as well as with memory or attention. So I found that to be really beneficial. So it really depends what the client's lifestyle is like, what they have access to, what the environment, what the climate's like. But generally, it's not going to be like higher intensity activities. Now, there are times that I prescribe cardio, but that's with the elicited effect. I'm looking for an adaptation. I'm looking for specific aerobic adaptations. So that's where it's at as prescribed heart rate. You know, it might be for someone that's younger, 120 to 140 based on, you know, what is their 60 to 70% VO2 max. However, that's really not the intention that I have with energy flux. 
Okay. Okay. Absolutely. I think that, I think that distinction is helpful also because I, again, think it could just be easy to like get, like lean a little bit more towards like, okay, now I'm going to go like hop on the ceremony for an hour where again, like, no, no, no. Okay. So that's counterproducing what we're trying to achieve here. That's a big thing. So the step mill is one that I rule out with all clients because I do have some, I have a lot of female clients that came to me that we could, we could label as cardio bunnies. And then they want to be doing, you know, I, I tell them all the time, the intention of this is to have you eating more and burning more, but not in the fashion that you did before. So I have a lot of, you know, former physique athletes or even college athletes that come to me and they're so used to hours and hours and hour training sessions, but they're highly stressed. They have different lives. Now their moms or they, they're, you know, their wives, they don't have the time, but then they want to be telling me that they're going to do an hour of the step mill in the morning and at night. And I'm like, listen, that's exactly the opposite of what I want you to do. You came to me from these hit classes from these boot camp classes and you were burnt out doing Metcons, we want to lower systemic stress. So I want you to go out in nature, do something that's not going to rile you up. You know, if you're going to do it, you know, this is another thing. If they're going to do it on the treadmill and they're going to do it leisurely, they're not doing work from their, their, the treadmill or they're not taking calls. I'll have them watch a Netflix show so that they're, they're engaged in something. It's something that we're killing two birds with one stone. I still want you to either be able to breathe nasally. So you're not out of breath. You're not mouth breathing and sympathetic and you're not like really expending that much um, you know, energy in terms of your actual capacity, but I also don't want it to re- cut into your recovery capacity. And that's the biggest thing. I want this to aid in recovery, not take away from it. Okay. Absolutely. So why for the listener, why is meat so important? Non-exercise activity thermogenesis so important during a fat loss phase or post fat loss phase? Yeah. So Let's think about the concept of, of fat loss in and of itself. Um, we know that when we lose fat, we experience several diet-induced metabolic adaptations. And this is something we did a deep dive on in one of our episodes. But essentially, our body essentially wants to maintain homeostasis. So it wants, wherever you're at, you know, at currently at maintenance, that's what your body wants to maintain. So when you eat less calories than usual, it adapts and tries to ramp down how many calories you burn per day in an effort to just conserve energy and preserve further fat loss. And I'm sure that anyone who's listening to this and who has lost a significant amount of fat can attest to the fact that when you first start a diet, it probably seemed easy to lose those first few pounds. But after being in a fat loss phase for a bit of time, you'll start noticing that you need to make more frequent adjustments, more drastic adjustments to both either your calorie intake or your energy expenditure to keep losing body fat and seeing progress. And the reason for this is because when you diet, your total daily energy expenditure gets downregulated because you're losing body fat. So you're becoming a lighter, smaller person, you know, and that's great because you're getting leaner, you're getting closer towards your goal, but your body's expending less calories in and of itself as a result of that. And we often see up to a 25% decrease in the amount of calories we burn per day when someone loses 10% of their body weight or more. But of that 25% down regulation, you know, a lot of people don't realize that reductions in your non-exercise activity thermogenesis usually account up to 85 to 90% of that. So if we think about that from like a mathematical perspective, 90% of 25 is somewhere like 22 or 23%. So like 23% of what we consider metabolic adaptation. So if you're burning for every thousand calories you burned, you know, before you went into a deficit, now 230 of those calories are are negated. So we're, we're erasing deficits left and right over here, you know, so seeing that that neat accounts for so such a considerable part of metabolic adaptation is really the reason why I focus so heavily on increasing meat and an effort to increase energy flux, which helps to mitigate and manage some of these metabolic adaptations. Because I'll tell you, 
the reason that I speak on metabolic adaptations and diet, in, uh, you know, diet-induced issues as well as adaptive thermogenesis is because I have so many people that have come to me over the years that thought they had a damaged metabolism or they had went through really uh, harsh fat loss phases where they, they over-restricted themselves and they, they regained. So a lot of these topics that I hit on, it's because I've experienced and I've had so many clients come to me over the years with these issues. So over time, you know, as I, I've hit on in previous podcasts and in the last one, really what I'm looking for is solution-based methods. So I'm trying to see what is the main problem that those who come to me are dealing with and what can I do to help them? And so from a neat perspective, we also see that there's a massive variance in the amount of calories that two people can burn through meat, even if they're of the same sex, the same age, the same body comp, and the same weight. And there's even a study dating back to the 90s where they observe people in their day-to-day lives. And they found that meat can impact our energy expenditure by up to 2,000 calories per day between individuals of the same size. So basically someone that's in like what I consider a low flux state could be maintaining their body composition at 2000 calories per day, while another person with the exact same body composition could be maintaining that same body fat level and that same, you know, um, you know body composition and all that stuff at 4000 calories per day, which is a hell of a difference. So it really is realizing that we can influence so ma- many aspects of our total daily energy expenditure just through energy flux and really predominantly through meat. And it's this easy tool, this easy lever that we're able to pull and really uh, take advantage of. There's such low hanging fruit so many people leave on table. I know I've talked to a lot of people via DM and tons of new clients coming on board. Well, similarly to what you discussed there, we'll be in this place where it's like, hey, I feel like there's something wrong with me, my metabolism, my I think there's something off there because I'm, I nail my macros, but I just can't seem to lose body fat. Now, of course, like sometimes there's other things going on, but oftentimes it is like, Hey, have you ever tracked steps? And it's uh, never really considered that. Right. Where it's, as you mentioned, it's just such a big piece of this process. I think that's where like tracking your movement, your knee, however you want to go about that. such a big piece of this process that so many people overlook, which kind of leads me to the question, how do you track me or how do you have your clients track their movement? Yeah. So Adam, all the activities that we could categorize underneath, um, the easiest one to track, to measure and to modify is our step count. So that's really what I go with. And tracking average daily step count is something that I utilize with most of my clients at this point, because not only does it help me get more of an all encompassing view of how physically active they are, but it's also super accessible and easy to track. Um, You can do this through so many methods too, especially now, like when I first started tracking, you know, steps with clients, it was around 2015 and there wasn't as many methods, but really when you think about it, we have activity trackers like the Fitbit, which are easily accessible. We can do it on the health phone on our you know, iOS system. So the health app will record it. If you have your phone on you most of the day, that's going to be more than sufficient. You can get a more advanced piece of tech, like an Aura Ring or an Apple Watch. I personally use the Aura Ring. I find that to be the most accurate, but it isn't about that. It is just having something that you're going to use consistently. Or honestly, there's certain clients that say, hey, listen, I don't want to buy this, or I don't want to you know, wear something on my wrist or my, my finger or whatever it may be. And I literally have them go to Walmart or like a, a department store and get a $5 pedometer. And I'll have them either put it on their, on their hip or even on their shoe. Like It's super easy. It's super accessible. And, and it's something that there's really no limitation, especially from a cost perspective. Because when these first came out, like I remember the first one I got was a Polar watch and I had the, the heart rate strap and everything. I was all geared up. And that thing was like $300 back in like 2015. And that was like, that was a high barrier for entry. So it wasn't something I could use with all my clients. But ultimately, this is something that's super accessible. And it's a great tracking tool as well as an awareness tool. And it's also an easy programming metric to progress on as we can focus on just titrating a, a client's step count over time and shoot for goals like say adding a thousand calories or a thousand steps per week, um, you know, per day per week, 
and which is easy to hit, but also it's going to move the needle in terms of increasing energy flux and getting all the benefits that living a high energy flux lifestyle provides. So I know that there was a recent meta-analysis. I saw Greg Knuckles post about it. And essentially for every thousand steps that we increase, we saw an a 16% decrease in all cause mortality risk. So these are like little, little easy wins. And this is stuff like, remember, I covered all these benefits last week, but this is another win. It's just going to improve your health all the more. So even a thousand, like a thousand steps, sometimes I'll tell that to a client and they're saying, well, that's super easy. And I'm like, great. It's going to be easy for you to implement. You won't miss. You know what I mean? It's, it's these low hanging fruit. That's so easy to implement. And I also find that many don't realize it until they try it, but just by increasing their steps and the physical activities that make up their need, we could substantially increase how much they can eat and stay weight stable on it. And it really is something that you have to see to believe you have to do the titration method. You know, I'll often work it up, you know, calorie wise. I have so many, especially females, honestly, that come to me and they can't believe I have a girl currently right now. She came to me eating 30 grams of carbs, um, last year. And it was, she was in a dieting phase, but she still had a good amount to lose. And she was at 30 grams of carbs. She was pretty much on a protein sparing modified fast. Her fats were about 40 or her carbs were at 30. And she was on a higher protein intake for her body weight, probably like 120, 130. And uh, this girl was about 135 pounds. And I got her up to the point where through this energy flux approach and all this stuff, we actually, she actually lost seven pounds. And now mind you, we've been working together a year, but she's eating 375 grams of carbs. So her calorie intake is substantially higher. And she tells me all the time, I can't believe we were able to do this, but we restructured her lifestyle. We incorporated more movement rather than, she was doing 50 sets per workout, Jeremiah, in terms of her, her training volume. It was- On 30 was, grams of carbs. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. Never getting pumps, all these things. We changed her. You know, I always say, I'm not looking just for physique transformation. I'm looking for lifestyle transformations. She was coming to me like she was trash from the gym. She was- compensating, not knowing it. It wasn't like she said, Oh, I sit around all the time, but I'm looking at her steps. I'm like, all right, we're going to work out. We're going to utilize some different methods. And really I've seen so much in so many cases like that, where I've really been able to increase someone's, not only their, their calorie intake, but their quality of life in the process, because who wants to be eating 30 grams of carbs for extended periods of time? Who wants to be, you know, for a goal, if you're trying to get on stage, don't get me wrong. I work with a lot of competitors and there's certain times you got to pull that lever and you got to get low in calories for, but it's for, a short period of time. And this isn't to sustain for life because no one's going to sustain five or 6% body fat. However, if your goal is to live a lean, you know, living lean, essentially having a lean, um, healthy physique, we got to do things in a sustainable manner where we incorporate things into your day-to-day lifestyle, both from a nutritional, a training, and then a movement perspective that's going to allow you to attain results and then maintain them long-term. So to play devil's advocate here a bit, most like orange theory, for example, like most people that are talking about like us working out, it's from the perspective of how many calories you're going to burn within a training session. Right. So why do you track steps rather than focused on calories burned? Yeah. So this is actually something I get asked about often. And it was something that initially, um, when I first started using energy flux, I started using like calorie tracking apps and stuff. And, um, at the time I didn't realize how, um, susceptible they were to being inaccurate. And it really wasn't until um, a few, maybe a year into it that I realized, you know, there's such a high degree of error in terms of the energy expenditure estimates or like the calories burn number that these activity trackers give us. And oftentimes they actually overestimate by hundreds of calories, which is drastic. So we actually have multiple meta-analyses that have come out since 2017 that show that even the most popular and high-end devices like your Apple Watch or your Fitbit are highly inaccurate when it comes to tracking the total amount of calories we burn per day. And the issue with this 
is that it can make a client feel like they burned a lot more calories than they actually did, which can result in compensatory eating behaviors where they try to eat back their calories, which is a situation I encountered early on. A client will come to me and say, well, you know, you had me at this intake, but I burned 800 calories in this, in this weight training session. So I ate a couple more hundred calories because we only expected me to burn 300. And now, mind, mind you, they just put themselves in a 500-calorie surplus where they just negated their deficit. And what I've seen is at that time, I was seeing these individuals spinning their wheels and getting frustrated as a result and not realizing why their calorie intake and their calorie expenditure didn't match one another. Because what they were seeing on a watch or on a device didn't match what they were eating. And they were actually in a surplus, but they thought that they were in a deficit. So just the mental you know, just battle of that was, was draining. So it's something that I really tried to steer away from, and I completely stopped using them. However, most activity trackers use accelerometers to track your steps. And that accelerometers have been tested and then been validated and shown to be fairly accurate. But here's the thing. So say that you, you don't get a Fitbit or you don't get an aura ring that's extremely accurate. Even if you go for a cheap device, like a $5 pedometer or a $10 you know, knockoff Fitbit, even if that device isn't 100% accurate for its step count, it really doesn't matter. Because what we're, we're not aiming for perfection with steps. We're aiming for progression, meaning we're trying to increase it up as we increase your food intake up. And I'm, I'm tracking multiple metrics. So I'm seeing how your body weight and how your body composition changes in accordance. So there's stop gaps in the system that if you're gaining at an accelerated rate, obviously you're not hitting the step count. However, you know, so as long as your step count stays consistent and either increases or maintains over time, it doesn't matter if your watch missed a step or two. Whereas if we take this calorie, you know, math equation type of approach, we're going to end up getting burned in the end because it's so inaccurate from day to day. And really what I try to get across to clients when they come to me and they say, well, listen, I don't know if this is exactly accurate. I'm like, well, did you maintain your steps or did they increase? And they're like, yeah. So I'm like, listen, we're going to utilize it like a scale. You could have a broken scale, but as long as the weight is trending in the correct you know, direction, it could be a pound off. So for instance, here am I. I actually had this with a client. They had a, uh, a scale that was like a pound or two heavy. So at the gym, they were lighter. When they would go and fasted, it wasn't a huge deal. But when they used the calibrated scale, it was about a one and a half pound difference. And she said, do you, do you want me to get another scale? And I said, no, I can see the weight trend going down. It doesn't matter if it's 100% accurate. And it doesn't matter what the scale says in terms of if you're 121.5 or 120 pounds, it's your body composition I'm looking at. But over the course of the fat loss phase, if we go, we see you going from 121 to 120 to 119, it doesn't matter if that scale was a pound and a half off because it's going to be a pound and a half off every time you step on it. So it's not about perfection. It's about consistency. That's actually the exact same analogy that I've always used with clients worried about how accurate their step count tracker is. We're very much, we're looking at the trends and how the trends are changing over time. So how do you actually help clients increase their new levels? Yeah, so like I mentioned earlier, the first thing I'll have a client do is track their baseline step count. So I know where they're starting at and I can meet them where they're at. Because that's, that's huge. A lot of times people ask me, well, how many steps should I be putting my clients at? Or how many steps should I do? I can't tell you. I haven't gotten an intake form from you. I haven't done a consultation with you. I know nothing about you. So there's a process behind this. And there's never, like I said, there's never a protocol. There's never a set and forget principle. I can't tell you the amount of steps. I can tell you what a meta-analysis says, and I can tell you what the Amish do, but I can't tell you what you as a genetically unique and, you know, a genetically unique individual needs to do. So first I'm getting their baseline and I'm meeting them where they're at. And from there, the first thing I do is I increase their calories 
along with their steps using a ton of different methods and strategies. And it really comes down to, I have some key principles that I use, but as with everything, and I always tell you this, it depends. It depends on the client. It depends on their preferences. And I'm going back and forth with them. I'm really getting a feel for who they are, what they can do, and what their lifestyle entails. But there's a few things that I generally like to include because they have multi-pronged benefits. So really what I try to do is I like utilizing tools that have multiple benefits. It's not just, hey, we're increasing your calorie expenditure or, you know, that's the exact reason I use Energy Flux because it has so many multi-pronged benefits. So the first thing I like to have clients do is I'll have them start their day with a morning walk. And I find this to be really effective. You know, it's really effective as it's a productive way to start the day in an active way. And I try to get them to do it outdoors as I want them to start their day with some sunlight exposure. And by just spending just a few minutes, even if they go for a 10 minute walk earlier in the day, getting some sunlight, it's going to help to, you know, sync up and, and set up your circadian rhythm. It's going to help with your sleep and wake cycles. And it also balances out hormones like, you know, cortisol and melatonin production, you know, then, you know, they may go to work. So yeah, I'll give you an example of like a, a busy executive in the morning, they might do a, a 10, 20 minute walk, whatever it may be. And so from there, they're going to go to work. And what at work, what I like to have them do is I have many take breaks throughout the day just to get into movement. An easy way to do this is to just get up and move for a few uh, minutes every hour. So just increase or decrease your sedentary time. And there's so many studies that show a benefit from incorporating what are called exercise snacks. And that's just pretty much breaking up your day. So what we're doing is, you know, we're breaking up your sedentary time with just small amounts of physical activity. And this has been shown to have benefits from like an insulin sensitivity perspective, a metabolic perspective, but it's also an easy way to increase energy flux and thus energy expenditure. So there's actually a study from Dempsey on the benefits of interrupted, uh, pro, interrupting prolonged sitting breaks with brief periods of low intensity activity where they pretty much just took people and they put them in one or two conditions. So they either had them sit for the entire duration of their eight hour workday, or they had them do a light form of physical activity for six hours for, or for six minutes for every hour that they sat. And throughout the course of the day, what they did with both groups. So they did a crossover trial. So both people, you know, people did both conditions. They did an eight hour workday sedentary, as well as an eight hour workday where they did those light movements or light, you know, brief uh, bouts of movement. And what they had them do was consume three standardized meals throughout the course of the day, which consisted of, um, I believe it was like 30 grams of protein. I know it was 115 grams of carbs, and I believe it was 30 grams of fat. So they were pretty calorically dense. And really what they were doing was they wanted to test their post-meal metabolic responses to these meals. So how is their insulin sensitivity? How is their blood glucose elevations? How is their fatty acid metabolism? How, you know, when they're, they're sedentary throughout the course of the day, and then when they're active or lightly active throughout the course of the day. And by just implementing six minutes of low intensity activity for every 60 minutes, they were seated throughout the course of that eight hour workday. They saw significant improvements in both their glucose and their insulin levels. So automatically in one day, they saw a benefit from a metabolic health perspective. And then from like an energy expenditure perspective, we have a study by Schwartz where they took individuals and had them take a five minute walk break every hour and showed, you know, every hour throughout the course of their eight hour workday and showed that this increased their energy expenditure by over 132 calories over the course of an eight hour workday. And then over the course of the week that they did it in or the five day work week, essentially they increased it by 660 calories. So literally just by getting up, you know, your coworkers might be going to have a smoke break or they're, they're actually getting a snack. Instead, go get an exercise snack, walk around the building, go to the furthest bathroom away, just get some movement in. And this is super simple to implement and, and it's really beneficial. So it's something that I can almost get every single, you know, client of mine to do, especially 
in this era where so many are working from home. I'm like, listen, set your alarm every hour, get up for five minutes, go up and down your hallway, whatever, take a, a break, call someone, take your kid out, whatever it may be, just go outside, get some fresh air and just reset your mind. It's going to help your cognition, your ability to be productive. It's going to give you a little mental reset and it's going to have those um, metabolic and, and physical um, benefits as well. And another thing that I really like to do is post-meal walks, which is something that I do daily. So at least three of my biggest meals of the day, I take a post-meal walk because they provide so many benefits. So they help to minimize the post-meal spikes in blood sugar and insulin, which increases insulin sensitivity and also helps with nutrient partitioning because now you're moving muscles. You know, even a walk, you know, your biggest muscle is your leg muscles. So you're essentially increasing glute four uh, translocation. You're getting that glucose absorbed into the system without the need for insulin. So now you're lowering your insulin needs in the body. And they've also done comparative trials looking at post-meal walks as compared to type 2 diabetic medications for controlling type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance. And they've actually been shown three 10-minute walks per day have been shown to be twice as effective as a leading uh, diabetes medication for preventing and management of type 2 diabetes. So, I mean, these are drastic. Like when I say, I often tell people, hey, movement is medicine. And it really can be in certain circumstances. Now, this isn't telling anyone. If you're type 2 diabetic, believe me, I've worked with a lot of uh, diabetics. I'm not telling you to get off your glucophage. What I'm saying is utilize some, some walk breaks and maybe you'll be able to titrate down your dose. And then also just from like a digestive perspective, I obviously have a lot of clients that come to me with digestive disorders. Just post-meal walks are going to help decrease uh, gas. They're going to improve digestion. They're going to decrease bloating. And anyone that's done them will be able to attest to that. So it's an easy, low-hanging fruit to improve digestion. And then you're also going to decrease DOMS and improve recovery because you're getting more blood flow. So these are really easy, low-hanging fruit. And then from there, I'll plug in other forms of activity into their daily life. So I'll just tell them, listen, park in the back of the parking lot rather than in the front and just walk a little bit further. Maybe go to the grocery store more often. Instead of you know going to Costco and buying everything that you need for the next month, just go on a more frequent basis, just so you have another reason to get out of the house, especially in today's climate. You know, take the stairs instead of an elevator. Um, a big thing that I do, and I'll tell you that this has been one of the most drastic levers that I've pulled for energy flux for myself, is, and this is actually like a, a big um, pet peeve of mine. Most people, what do they do when they're in the gym, Jeremiah, in between sets? Sit on the phone. Yep. And they're doing nothing productive with that. So, you know, we also see that there's actually some, some studies that have come out recently that you can incur mental fatigue by being on social media or, or doing things on your phone in between sets as well as between your workouts. So that's actually decreasing your capacity to actually perform in the gym. So not only is it wasting your time and making you more sedentary, but it's also, you know, uh, accumulating mental fatigue. So really what I like to do is I like to take a, a lap or two around the gym. And I'll tell you in my training sessions, I'm probably in the gym for about two hours between my warm up, my mobility and all that other stuff, but I'm getting four to 5,000 steps easy in the gym. So like, it's another way, like I don't have a lot of time. You know, I have a, a busy online coaching business. I try to put out as much content as possible. I have other projects that I'm working on. I do mentorships. So really like, I don't have all this time a day, but I still average 15,000 steps because I make sure that I implement it into periods of my time where I maximize my efficiency. So I'm already going to be in the gym. If I'm trying to maximize hypertrophy, I'm taking three minutes in between sets. So a set might take me 30 seconds, but then I have three minute breaks. So what, why am I going to sit there and just chill? You know, I'm not going to hamper my recovery. If anything, I'm improving my recovery because I'm increasing, you know, blood flow by walking around the gym. And I'm also keeping myself in a better mental space where I'm not as susceptible to be on my phone. Like I'll track, you know, I have a tracking app on my phone for sets and stuff. I'm writing down that stuff, but it keeps me more in the zone. It keeps me active and I don't get cold in between sets, which is especially, you know, important when I'm in Jersey and it's cold out. So in the gyms, like if they don't have great heating, like I'm getting cold in between sets if I'm just sitting there. So it's just an active way, guys, like 
think of little things that you can do to just increase your activity and think of it as movement and a physical practice that is incorporated into your day-to-day life rather than as exercise. Because when often when we think about things as exercise, it, it almost becomes something we have to do instead of something that we, we get to do. And ultimately, these are just ideas. You know, so I put out things, I'm putting out principles, but, but really what I try to encourage clients to do is find phys- forms of physical activity that they enjoy to do. Because what, what it really comes down to is adherence and what they're going to consistently do. So really my goal is to encourage them to stay active, to engage in enjoyable activities, and to also do things that are going to help them relax. Because I do deal with a lot of highly stressed individuals. And I think that's just like um, part of our society at this point. We're all overworked and underslept. And so if I can get them to do an activity that just shuts their brain off or they have a guilty pleasure, like a trashy Netflix show that they really like, hey, listen, go for a walk and go watch it or or just incorporate some type of movement instead of plopping yourself on your couch for hours at a time. And so, you know, but just by implementing some of these things, especially, you know, utilizing it as a stress management technique, it's going to help to activate that parasympathetic nervous system. It's going to help lower, you know, cortisol and stress levels. And it's really going to help you live a more fulfilled life as well as improve your health and your physique. Okay. So within that, is there a specific situation where you find energy flux most beneficial? Absolutely. So I I will say a little caveat to this. I do find energy flux to be beneficial in almost every phase. So I've used it in building phases. I've used it in uh, fat loss phases. If I've worked with someone previously, if someone comes to me and they're already dieted down and metabolically adapted, I can't use energy flux. Because if they're already at a lower energy expenditure and they're already downregulated, I can't increase energy expenditure because I have to increase calories in the system. And if they're already really dieted down, we don't have a lot of calories to play with. So I will say a caveat to that because I have had a lot of other people reach out to me and say, hey, I tried you, you know, increasing steps during a, a fat loss phase. You know, I started it, I started at 5,000 steps and now I'm at 15,000. I say, all right, well, where were your calories at? And they're like, oh, I was on 1,200 calories. We already metabolically adapted. You're really, you're, all you're doing is putting more excessive fatigue because you weren't doing that since the start. So you're not getting the full benefits because you didn't do eat more, move more. This is why I specifically have always coined it, eat more, move more. Eat more, it comes first. That's a priority. We feel this activity and then we get the benefits from that movement. So when it comes to what phases I find this to be most effective for, it really does come down to, I find it most effective after an active fat loss phase. Um, Because when staying lean is your goal, being highly active will allow you to eat more and remain weight stable at a higher calorie intake than you would be able to eat otherwise. So this is an approach I've used with many clients during reverse, you know, reverse dieting phases or primer phases, as I'll keep their activity levels up while increasing calories, which allows them to eat much more and feel better, but not suffer those same rapid rebounds in weight that many suffer post-diet. So this has been really instrumental in my approach to reverse dieting and primer phases and even maintenance phases where a client would normally say, hey, listen, I usually maintain around 2,000 calories as a female or you know, 3,000 calories as a male, and now I'm seeing them hundreds of calories above that and staying just as lean or leaner than they have in the past. And we don't see those rapid fluctuations and we don't see that fat regain that they've had in the past because we're keeping them more active and we're upregulating their energy expenditure. And as we talked about on the last episode, again, there's not necessarily a weight loss problem. It's a weight maintenance problem or a body fat maintenance problem, right? So I think that the application here to making it so much easier to maintain a lean body composition long-term post-fat loss phase it's so important. And it's, it's so surprising to me, the more I hear you talk about this, there's just not more information about this, like referencing this being more effective than the leading type two diabetes medication. Like that's fucking crazy. <laughs> it is wild. That, like but that's something mind, that's not more talked about. 
So, so not many people were talking about this before I started coming out and, and speaking on this topic, but I'm also pulling from so many different aspects of literature. And I think that, you know, I, I really encourage other people to do this. Look outside of just hypertrophy research. Look outside. Like I'm looking at obesity research. I'm looking at uh, diabetic research. And that was because, you know, I, I lost my father to diabetes related complications, but I'm very into metabolic health studies. I'm into um, longevity studies. I'm looking at all these different aspects from just besides just like the pure fat loss. And I've said this on other podcasts, but I think our industry has really um, made an error where they only focus on fat loss. So it's only about the active goal. You know what I mean? It's a short-term goal and really people get goal oriented rather than process oriented. So they get focused on pr uh, protocols rather than or, or principles. And really what that comes down to is they're a baker, you know? So there's a difference between bakers and coaches and a baker is someone, they take a recipe or a protocol and they apply it to everyone. It's a one size fits all. And they only have one way to get to the destination. They think, Hey, this is, you know, it's baking is a science. You essentially take a recipe, you, you follow it from um, direction A to direction Z and you get an outcome, but there's no originality to it. There's no, you know, if someone that, you know, you're baking for has a preference or has an allergy to chocolate, if the recipe calls for chocolate, you still put it in because you don't know how to swap it out. Now, coaching is a different thing. It's a combining an art and a science. And then there's a higher level of that. This is what a chef is. A chef is a master. They've, they've gained mastery in their discipline and they're able to take both the science and what's been shown in the literature. And they're also able to combine it with their own anecdotal and personal experience, having worked with themselves and hundreds of clients and really make this concoction, which comes out to be a masterpiece for whoever they're presenting their meal to, or in this case, whatever principle-based um, program that they're presenting their client with that's fit for them. So this is really where it comes down to. Our industry focuses a lot on fat loss, but not enough on fat loss maintenance, which is why, honestly, I was so frustrated over the years having so many people come to me, having been yo-yo dieters or having went through the post-diet rebound or having you know, um, sustain the body fat overshoot effect. Think about you. I'll guarantee there's no one that's ever done a podcast on that besides me, because a lot of people are only looking at where, where can I get someone in 12 weeks? I'm more concerned with where can I get someone in 12 months and where can I maintain them? I, I know I can get people lean and I had hundreds of times over the years, but I've also maintained them, those results. So really as an industry, we need to stop looking at physique transformations and start looking at lifestyle transformations and interventions that are going to help people long-term because Anyone can get a result for a few weeks and, and look lean for you know a stage or a photo shoot or for a weekend or an event. But if you're unable to sustain that and you made all these sacrifices to get there, but you don't know how to get your way out and also make sure that you know you don't incur all these negative adaptations as well as these negative uh, consequences of dieting, like overshooting fat after your, your weight loss phase you're really not going to feel fulfilled. It's going to be, you felt like you just invested into a coach, you invest into a process and you didn't get much out of return. You might've gotten a couple photos or a nice vacation, but now you have all these, these negative ramifications to your physiology and then your psychology. So really I, I try to look at things, where is this going to be most beneficial to the most amount of people? And that's why I focus on, on concepts that a lot of people don't. Absolutely. And I think that as a coach, it's easy to kind of struggle with, not necessarily giving clients what they want right away, right? Like a lot of clients will want mm -hmm. that quick 12, 12 week transformation, right? But we have to look at it from, okay, is me taking them through a fat loss phase right now, like they've been dieting, 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 is me continuing this trend, like long-term, is that actually what's going to be best for the clients, long-term ability to maintain these results, their health, et cetera. And I think, because I think it is so easy as a coach, like fall in a trap of, okay, what, what can I do to make the client happiest immediately? Whereas even like from that perspective, I think like having those conversations around, hey, this is why we're not going to be dieting for a while. This is why this is going to be a lot longer process than you want. But in a year, in two years, whatever it may be, 
we are in such a better place with your health, with your physique, et cetera, because we took that. I think like being able to lay that out is so important. Um, one final question I had for you, just kind of a selfish question. As our team works with mostly women, are there any specific benefits or reasons why like being in a state of high energy flux is important for women? Absolutely. So I will say this. I believe that energy flux can be applied to some, anyone of any sex. However, I will say that one of the reasons that I find energy flux and increasing meat via steps so important for females, especially, is that there are a few things about a female's physiology that makes the process of losing fat and especially maintaining fat loss more difficult than it is for males to do. And so, you know, for one, let's, let's think about it from a physiological perspective. A female's body naturally fights the process of fat loss much harder than a male's does. So they tend to suffer from metabolic adaptation in a quicker, but also a more drastic and dramatic uh, way than males do. And this is based on many reasons, but really when we look at it evolutionarily, we know that women were, were meant to reproduce. So th- there's stop gaps in the system that really prevent them from getting to a low level of body fat. And even if we look at from like, an essential body fat level, we'll see that there's a discrepancy when you look at males and females. And generally, we'll see that males, uh, females on average hold 9 to 10% more body fat than men. And the reason for that is because a male has 3% essential body fat, whereas a woman on average has 12% essential body fat. So if, you know, I have females that have come to me that have competed that I've, I've brought through preps and they want to get like super dice. But what I always try to explain to them, you at 15% body fat is a male at 3% body fat, essentially. Like we are down to the very low essentials of body fat, and you're going to suffer ramifications for that. And so really what it is, we have to take a different approach, and we also have to utilize different tools and different levers. But energy flux is one that I, I believe can work for both sexes. But really, I like utilizing meat, especially with females, and for a variety of reasons. And one of them is because we see that females actually see a more drastic drop in their subconscious activity levels like me than males do. And this is something that can slow down both their fat loss journeys and can cause them to hit more plateaus along the process. And I'm sure you can attest to this. If you were to take a male and female, and you know, I get this all the time with, I work with a lot of couples and I'll generally have the male and the female come to me and they'll both want to go through a fat loss phase. And one thing I've learned through experience now is I always say, do not compare your husband's fat loss journey to yours. And because, you know, even if they weren't, you know, in a relationship together and they're competitive and stuff, on average, males, you know, men will have a higher metabolic rate than women do because men generally have both more muscle mass than women do, as well as lower body fat. So they're going to have a higher resting metabolic rate. And this is one of the reasons why women have such a much harder time losing fat than men. And a lot of times I find that this can be frustrating for females to understand. But if we think about what it takes to lose fat, it'll make more sense as in order to lose a pound of fat, we know that we need to create a 3,500 calorie deficit. And so often when I have a male and female come to me, I'll explain this off the bat because I want them to understand, listen, the same deficit is needed to lose the same amount of fat, but it's going to look different for both of you. So we know that the energetic cost associated with losing fat is the same regardless of your sex and your starting size. So it doesn't matter if it's Jeremiah at 200 pounds or if it's his, his girlfriend at 120 pounds, it's the same cost that our body needs to go through. But there's big differences in how we get there and the um, side effects and the ramifications that we have to incur or the the adaptations that we incur along the process. So say that I have that 120-pound female client come to me who's maintaining her weight on 2,000 calories per day. And then I have Jeremiah who's 200 pounds and maintaining his weight on 3,000 calories per day. And they both wish to lose that one pound per week fat loss metric. Well, we know that they both need to create the same 500-calorie deficit. 
Yet when we look at like what a 500 calorie deficit entails, this is going to make up a much larger percentage decrease of a smaller female's total calorie intake than in larger males. So in the case, like say it's Jeremiah's girlfriend, if she was to take and she needed to create a 500 calorie deficit, that's going to require a 25% deficit off the bat. So she's going from 2000 to 1500 calories to lose one pound of fat per week. Whereas with, with Jeremiah, that's going to be like a 16% deficit because you're going to be going, you know, I've dropped a quarter of your girlfriend's calories where I've dropped the sixth of your calories because you have more calories to play with. You started with a thousand more. So you're going to have, it's going to be less of a relative deficit. So when we're looking at fat loss, we have to look at and think in things of total caloric thresholds that the two are at. So right now, your girlfriend's at 1,500 calories. She just started her diet. She's automatically at 1,500. Whereas you're at 2,500 calories, which provides a lot more room to play with. And despite the fact that it's the same absolute decrease, so you guys both decrease calories by 500, it's not the same in terms of the percentage calorie intake, which is the major difference. So this is where I find that utilizing a high energy flux approach can be advantageous because it allows me to essentially keep a female client's calorie intake higher and mitigate some of the metabolic adaptations that come with being at a really low calorie level, especially right off the bat, because we actually see in literature that females, we don't see this in males, females can actually get metabolic adaptations, both to thyroid and leptin levels within five days of dieting. So it's something that we see that they're more susceptible to the effects of going into a deficit. So if I can cr- increase energy expenditure and keep calories higher, it's going to put it's going to keep more energy in the system and help to mitigate some of those effects. And I found that this this approach, like utilizing high energy flux, especially with women, it not only has physiological benefits, but I've also found it to have a lot of psychological benefits. And I'm, I will say this applies to both sexes, but I've really found that once I get a female lean. And then I, I continue utilizing energy flux. It allows me to work up more food during the reverse dieting phases without my female clients experiencing that dreaded post-diet fat regain, which many have experienced in the past. And just by doing this, it improves their relationship with food and their outlook on nutrition, which I find to help increase their adherence first and foremost, but it also gets them out of this black and white mentality around food and being scared of taking in more calories in general, which is often something I don't see with males as often. Like I might have some guys come to me and they have a really restricted mindset around food, but they're not scared to eat more because they think I'm going to eat more, I'm going to build more muscle. But a lot of times I find women disassociate those two. They're more scared of eating more because of the association that they have with eating more and gaining more. Whereas when I'm trying, I get them into a, you know, a high energy flux phase where they're eating more, they're moving more, they're staying lean and they're feeling like they're in a state of abundance. It transforms both their life and their, their physique, but also their psychology and their mindset. And that's, that's honestly a really uh, fulfilling pro- uh, process to be a part of because I'm able to see someone grow both physically like in terms of their physique, but also in terms of their mentality, their approach on nutrition, their lifestyle, um, their relationship with food. These are all huge things. So they have so many other benefits just besides like what their body composition looks like that it's, it's going to impact so many various aspects of their life. And they're also their sustainability and their ability to maintain these results long-term. I think that's so important, such an important message to get out there too. I know 90% of the new client calls we have are with a woman that's coming from basically the state of eat less, move less. And she's basically felt trapped there for literally years where it's like, Hey, I'm trying to eat like a thousand, 1200 calories a day, but movement isn't that high. And thus like I'm stuck in this very restrictive mindset. Every time I like overeat a little bit, I feel like I see the scale sheet way up and it just like creates this vicious cycle where people literally get stuck. So I think like it's so, so important to put this out there. Um, I, as you mentioned, like it for all sexes, but I think women take so much value from this. Um, really, really enjoyed this wrap up. 
um, and kind of the application after really digging deep into the science behind this in part one. Are there any final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? Yeah, no, I think we did a great job covering both parts and I hope that everyone got a lot out of it. But I do want to make just like a little caveat because I do do a lot of appearances on podcasts on this topic. And there, you guys have to realize that there are things that I'm never going to be able to teach in a podcast. And I do want to make that statement. And it's not because I'm trying to hide things behind a curtain or anything of that sort. But when you've utilized an approach and you've developed a principle over years, you know, I'm doing this seven years just with this approach, but also I've been coaching for going on 10 years. And there's a lot of times that someone tries to take um, information that I put out there and apply it to themselves or clients. And, and that's, I, I don't hesitate. You know, I, I give out information freely because I want people to benefit from it, but I really want people to be caution, you know, to be cautious with their application and to really have that set and forget principle. And that's why I try to be very intentional with the information that I put out. But I do want to say like, especially on last week's you know, on um, content last week's podcast, you know, I'll tell you the studies and I'm not going to lie to you about the step counts that someone had, because that would be, you know, disingenuous. But just because I say, you know, the Amish were at 20,000 steps per day or the females were at 15,000, that's not my suggestion to you. Energy flux is about meeting you where you're at and titrating up and just becoming a better version of yourself. Don't expect for you to go from 5,000 steps per day and being fairly sedentary to going to 15,000 steps overnight and being able to eat as much as you want. That's not, you know, sometimes people, uh, they they misunderstand some of the things that I put out there and they're really not taking, they're not realizing the context in which I, I try to frame it and how intentional I am with my words. Really, I'm trying to encourage you guys, eat more, move more, but do so in your own manner. And if you need help with any of this, feel free to contact me. However, you know, don't just take a principle and, and think it's a protocol and automatically blindly apply it to yourself or to other people without consideration for the individual's personal preferences for their lifestyle, for their stress levels, for their training, for their history, um, both nutritionally and training wise and activity wise and all other aspects of their life. Because I would, I don't have a set and forget pr a protocol. I've been doing this longer than probably anyone with energy flux. And I still don't have a protocol that I could, you know, provide an ebook or an online class or a webinar. I, I don't have that. And the reason for that is because it's always individualized to the clients and I'm always taking in so much consideration and context into every person that I work with and every person that I apply this. And I will say this as well. This isn't for everyone. Sometimes it won't fit your goals. It won't fit your lifestyle. Or there are certain people, I'll tell you personally, there's been clients where I've gotten them eating so much that they don't want to eat anymore. You know what I mean? So they, we, we, we titrate back their movement because if not, we're going to be in an intentional deficit. This was something uh, we spoke about with Jeff. And I, you know, it was more about this cardio interrupt hypertrophy, but really what it comes down to is what are your goals currently? If I have a client, I just had a client this morning, he came in, his weight's been dropping. He's in an, a high flex state for the most part, but he just moved this past week and he, his steps went through the roof. I said, listen, we got to back down on steps, pulling down steps. I'm increasing food. You know what I mean? So it's, it's not always like a titration manner where I'm always going upward. So don't think it's like this staircase that we always climb up. There's going to be times that we take a step up, we take a step back as with everything. There's accumulation periods in training. Think about anything in life. There are times that everything's cyclical and phasic. There's going to be times that we're pushing up food intake and then we're pulling back for a reset or we're pulling back because now we're going into a fat loss phase. There's periodization within nutrition. There's periodization within training and there's periodization within movements. So th these are all things that there's so much more context to be taken into consideration. So I really do want to get that across. Love it, man. Yeah. It's always important to remember with the podcast, we're speaking about general principles, but the individual context is so important. So I know you already mentioned the podcast, man. Um, before I let you go, anything else at all you have going on you'd like to plug? No, so the podcast will be out next week when this comes out. So I'm looking forward to that. I would love for you guys to check it out. Jeremiah, I really appreciate your support. But anything else, guys, 
feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at Brandon DeCruz underscore or at my email at bdecruzfitness at gmail.com. Perfect, dude. I will link that up in the show notes as always. And again, man, thank you for being here.